0: Good afternoon. I think we're ready to begin promptly. Thank you much for, uh, very much for coming out on uh, such an inhospitable day. I promise you uh, much warmer and friendlier environments in here, although we're going to be dealing with a pretty difficult subject. I am delighted to welcome you to this uh, first in a series of talks that will explore current issues and challenges in law, public policy international relations, data privacy, and information security, which we wrap under the umbrella of cybersecurity. In that one word, cybersecurity, we sum up many of the things that keep CIOs, corporate and government leaders, technicians, and citizens awake at night. Tim, I'm counting on your talk today to help uh, put my mind at ease, at least on some of these concerns. My name is Alan Usas, and I am uh, happy to be serving as the program director for Brown's new degree program, Executive Master in Cybersecurity, or EMCS. Coincident with the launch of the new EMCS program at Brown, we envisioned sponsoring a series that would feature experienced and provocative speakers to stimulate conversations about cybersecurity. These events fit well with the mission of EMCS, which is to cultivate high-demand cross-industry leaders with unique and critical ability to devise and execute integrated, comprehensive cybersecurity strategies for nations and industries across the globe. In the program, we say, strategy is the best security. Please come talk to me following Tim's presentation if you'd like to hear more about EMCS or visit us at www.brown.edu/cybersecurity. Before I introduce Tim, uh, let me ask you in the audience and those of you watching online uh, to save the date of March 15th for the second in this series of talks. At that time, we are excited to have Helen Nissenbaum with us. She is professor of Media, Culture, and Communication and Computer Science at New York University and the director of the Information Law Institute. Her work spans societal, ethical, and political dimensions of information technology and digital media. Her most recent book is Obfuscation, a User's Guide for Privacy and Protest from the MIT press. Watch for more information about the event on March 15th here at the Joukowsky Forum at 4 p.m. Now, a few words about today's speaker. Tim Edgar is the Academic Director for Law and Policy in the Executive Master in Cybersecurity Program and Senior Fellow in International and Public Affairs here at the Watson Institute. Tim served under President Obama from 2009 to 2010 as the first Director of Privacy and Civil Liberties for the White House national security staff, focusing on cybersecurity, open government, and data privacy initiatives. Prior to that post, he was the first deputy for civil liberties for the director of national intelligence, reviewing new surveillance authorities, the terrorist watch list, and other sensitive programs. Immediately before coming to Brown, he was counsel for the information sharing environment which facilitates the secure sharing of terrorism related information. And before his government service, Tim was the National Security and Immigration Counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union, where he spearheaded the organization's innovative left right coalition advocating for safeguards for a number of post 9 11 counterterrorism initiatives. Tim is a frequent contributor to Lawfare Blog and has numerous publications appearing in Foreign Affairs, Wired, and The Wall Street Journal, among other places. He tweets at Timothy underscore Edgar. He earned his JD from Harvard Law School, where he served on the Harvard Law Review, and a bachelor's degree from Dartmouth College. Here at Watson, Tim focuses on the unique policy challenges posed by growing global cyber conflict, particularly in reconciling security interests with fundamental values, including privacy and internet freedom. I've had the great pleasure of getting to know Tim over these past few months working on our new program. He brings deep knowledge and broad experience to a complex subject. He also has amazing physical stamina, as I witnessed recently when he flew from San Francisco direct to join me in Brussels and immediately walked into the annual Computers Privacy and Data Protection Conference, looking as fresh and as alert as he does now. I know we are in for a very exciting presentation entitled Out of the Shadows, Reforming NSA Surveillance. Please help me in welcoming Tim.
1: Well, thank you very much for those kind words, Alan. I can't tell you how glad I am to have you here uh, with us to help uh, put together this exciting program, the Executive Master of Cybersecurity. We have several faculty members here with us. I wanted to point out Anna Lysianskia teaching a cryptography course in that. Uh, Deborah Hurley is here uh, teaching a course on privacy and legal requirements. Um, And Lynn is here as well. Uh, co-teaching that course. So that's wonderful. And I'm uh, really quite honored to be uh, kicking off this Distinguished Speaker Series uh, and appearing with uh, such luminaries as Helen Nissenbaum and others as we uh, continue the series. So this is going to be uh, not only a, a talk, but also a bit of a preview for a book that I'm in the process of writing. It's always a little dangerous to announce that ahead of time. Um, but I'm very hopeful this will be forthcoming early next year, uh, trying to make sense of how can we reform NSA surveillance programs. Um, so I want to begin with uh, the obvious Edward Snowden. Demonstrators in you know Berlin, San Francisco, around the world are carrying signs like this. Uh, Thank you, Edward Snowden. So why are they doing that? Well, uh, I think they're doing that because they view the NSA as one of the world's chief threats to privacy. Now, it might surprise you as somebody who worked uh, in the government, inside the intelligence community, to know that I agree with them. I think the NSA is one of the world's chief threats to privacy. Um, We could talk about others, such as Google and Facebook. But I (laughs) want to focus. Uh, And I mean that quite sincerely. I want to focus on the NSA, and I want to focus on it because uh, it is a symbol of the issues around government surveillance by the most powerful uh, surveillance agency of them all. For many years, we have had rules in the United States against domestic spying. That's how we reformed the NSA and other kinds of surveillance and intelligence agencies uh, back in the 1970s during the church committee era. uh, We decided, uh, hey, we have a problem in the middle of the Cold War uh, with our intelligence agencies getting out of control and putting uh, their surveillance powers domestically on domestic dissidents. So we came up with rules against domestic spying. The shorthand is we don't spy on Americans. That was always a little bit misleading, because, of course, there were legitimate reasons to spy on Americans uh, that were involved in international terrorism, that were involved in espionage. Um, And of course, there's the whole uh, criminal side, which I'm not going to talk about in this talk. I'm going to talk about intelligence surveillance. Uh, But it was still a pretty handy way of saying it, because those were the exceptions. Uh, Those exceptions were controlled by institutions we created, like the FISA court. Um, And the general rule was, if you're not in one of those exceptions, you're not going to do it. Uh, The rest of the world is fair game. That was the implicit um, uh, uh, decision by having rules against domestic spying. But today, our data, our personal lives, and our national security threats are all global. Let's think about those each one at a time. Our data can be stored anywhere around the world. Our personal lives are increasingly more global. Uh, In the middle of the 1970s, it would probably be a relative rarity for Americans to be in regular communication with people outside the United States. Certainly, there were people who did it. There were international telephone calls. It was pretty expensive. It wasn't a regular thing. Today, people all over the world are communicating by social network's email. um, And so you may be in contact on a regular basis with people all over the world, maybe people you don't even know where they are. Um, and then our national security threats are global as well. Uh, we are no longer in the Cold War era, where we could look at the Russians, the Soviet Union, other nations, and say, that's where the threat is. And you know, the issue here is espionage, connections to those foreign powers. Instead, the threat is transnational, uh, Al Qaeda, ISIL, uh, other groups like that, um, where Uh, The threat itself is transnational. It's not just a question of the data or our personal lives. So my contention is that protecting our privacy with rules that protect American privacy, that protect against domestic spying, that whole concept is out of date. That in order to protect our own privacy, we have to have better rules to protect everyone's privacy. And that's easy to say. It's very hard to do. And so I want to walk through how we might do it. But the first thing I want to talk about a little bit was the question of choices. And I'm going to walk through um, a former government official. Uh, This person was an insider with access to major NSA programs. Um, And he was troubled by the whole collect-it-all approach that the NSA adopted after 9-11, really a lot of the uh, reluctance to Uh, collect information went away after 9-11. Many laws were passed. um, And the general byword was, let's try to collect it all. He was troubled by that. Uh, He was hopeful about reforms under Obama coming and putting in place better rules to protect our privacy. And he left government in 2013. And of course, the person I'm talking about is me. Um, But of course, we could say the same thing about this fellow over here. Now, I want to be clear about this. We both faced a choice when we went into the government. I came out of the ACLU. I came into the government actually during the Bush administration in the second half of it. Um, I thought very carefully about, what am I going to do when I get this top secret security clearance and I find out what's really happening? I've been arguing against these kinds of broad powers for six years after 9-11 as an ACLU lobbyist, but I didn't know how the powers were actually being used. Uh, what am I going to do? Am I going to work within the system? Am I going to become a whistleblower? And I made a decision. I said, no, I'm, I'm working within the system. I'm picking a decision here that I'm going in with my eyes open. And if I find out things that I disagree with, um, they decided to hire me. They decided to hire an ACLU lawyer, uh, which was to their credit. uh, And I'm going to give them my honest advice. And if it's not heeded, well, I guess that's just too bad. Um, And I did find out about extraordinary, vast collection programs, such as the Telephone Metadata Collection Program. Found out relatively soon after I joined the government, in fact. Never expected to be able to talk about it. It was classified at the top secret, sensitive compartmented information level. Um, This was just a part of my life that I would talk about maybe in 50 years when it was declassified. When I came to Brown, I thought, I'll focus on this cybersecurity thing. This will be fun. Uh, But a lot of the stuff I worked on, I'm not going to be able to talk about. But then along came Snowden. (laughs) And he leaked a good deal of the programs that I had worked on. And along came the government and decided to confirm those leaks in order to defend themselves against the attack that none of these programs had any controls. And suddenly, uh, I had a different role, which was to talk about um, the programs I never thought that I'd be able to. I questioned a little bit my choice, frankly, uh, when Snowden became a whistleblower. I thought, you know, was this just cowardice on my part? You know, Is this just because I don't want to spend my life living in the Moscow airport? Um, And and I'll admit, that was certainly part of it. I was not interested in that kind of uh, stand. Uh, But it was also because I saw things differently than Edward Snowden did. Um, and, And part of the reason I saw things differently is because of the places in which we sat within the intelligence community apparatus. I sat pretty close to the top and looked at the whole system of intelligence collection as a whole and looked at the rules that governed it, and was thinking about policy and privacy protections. Um, We conducted audits. We tried to see if the rules were being followed. Snowden sat down there more in the middle, seeing the sort of dirty aspects of grabbing all the data, um, and, and didn't see, for the most part, the rules that were used to govern it. So we saw things a little bit differently. Also, my background is in law. Uh, Snowden's background is a sort of unconventional one, but to the extent he has one, it's in technology. And technologists and lawyers actually look at the world in a very different way. Now, in telling you about these choices, basically Snowden's choice to become a whistleblower and my choice to not be a whistleblower, for which I don't expect signs to be carried around. Thank you, Tim Edgar, for not being a whistleblower. Um, I want to put you in both of our shoes. But actually, I don't have to do that, because you already are. You know about the programs that the NSA is conducting because of both the government's, uh, both Snowden's decision and, and the government's decision to declassify them. So now it is up to us as members of the public to decide whether these programs are right or wrong. Um, and, and so we can't pretend that we don't know about them. So it seems to me we have at least three choices. Uh, we can decide well, this is what the government has to do to keep us safe. And whatever protections Tim Edgar told us exist in defending some of them, I guess they're probably good enough. So let's go ahead and and just decide that it's okay. Uh, We could go along with what I might call the full Snowden. Um, This is mass surveillance. And we need to shut it down. Uh, The only time you can engage in surveillance is with a targeted warrant a uh, probable cause of a crime, all those good things you might have read about in the Constitution. Um, you might try to do something a little bit in the middle, which I think is harder to do. It's always harder to make that case. Um, even in thinking about this book, I got some advice. Hey, this book's a little in the middle. You, know, you, you really want to take a stand. You know, I thought, well, should I be one of these right wing Fox News types? I'm going to write a book, Snow Job, how Snowden has destroyed America through his treasonous behavior. Um, or maybe just a screed against mass surveillance. Uh, but that's just not where I think uh, I am. And I also think it's not where the public is. So I'm going to argue for that third choice, and I'm going to try to do that here today with you. And it brings back to 2009, uh, remembering the promise of Barack Obama as captured in this poster by Shepard Fairey, the very famous Hope poster. Here's a version that says, yes, we can. Um, and ask ourselves the question of, you know, how would people consider Obama in 2009 if they were worried about privacy and civil liberties? You know, what would their reaction be to his campaign and to his uh, first uh, few days in office when there was such uh, hope for progressive change? Well, the first thing is, uh, Obama promised that there would be no more extravagant claims of executive power. Uh, That was a big part of the first term of the George W. Bush administration. Um, If you look at some of the decisions that were made in the area of counterterrorism, of which uh, the NSA surveillance programs were really just a part, uh, those decisions were based on, at least in part, refighting the battles of the 1970s. Uh, Dick Cheney was uh, personally part of that. Uh, was very much against the creation of the FISA court, thought it limited the president's power too much. Um, And so there was a conscious effort to restore the rightful role of the president's executive power to engage in national security decisions without pesky interference from the courts or the legislative branch, which just don't have that uh, authority, don't have that expertise. Um, That was the extravagant claims of executive power, which Barack Obama promised to end. Now, one of the things that made it very easy for for Barack Obama to fulfill this promise is that there was a shift, a shift that I participated in in the second half of the Bush administration, uh, between uh, basing surveillance and other counterterrorism authorities on the president's Article II constitutional power to trying to shoehorn those powers into the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and get the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, Court to sign off on those programs. Some of that shift happened publicly with the adoption of the FISA Amendments Act in 2008. Um, and Senator Obama actually voted for that act. It was his single most controversial thing he did among his supporters during the campaign. Uh, much of it took place in secret in the form of, Uh, hearings before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and decisions by that court to adopt very broad interpretations of the Patriot Act and then also the FISA Amendments Act to authorize the programs Bush had already put forward under his uh, alleged executive authority. But most of the public didn't appreciate that. And actually, a lot of it was still classified. So when Obama got into office in 2009, Uh, He had promised during the campaign a review of surveillance programs. And one of the first things that he did, and one of the first things um, that our office participated in, was briefing the president on these programs. We're going to come up. We're going to tell you exactly how these programs work, what the court orders are to get metadata, to get uh, content. Um, There are some compliance issues we need to talk about with you. And when that was done, Obama's response was, well, this looks like you guys have this under control. You know, obviously we want to keep on top of this. You know we want to keep looking at it. Uh, brief my attorney General Eric Holder about this. Uh, but we have this under control. And part of the reason he uh, adopted that viewpoint is that his critique of the surveillance state was never really a full ACLU-style critique of overbroad surveillance. It was much more about checks and balances, much more about a rule of law and less about civil liberties. This is uh, an insight that Charlie Savage uh, makes uh, very well in his new book, Power Wars. Um, So once you realize that we've put these under the FISA Court, the objections on the basis of checks and balances don't seem as significant, and essentially, President Obama turned to cybersecurity as his major new focus. And that was uh, how I ended up going to work for him in the White House. Um, And and you can see why. It was uh, the major new issue that he thought needed to be addressed. You fast forward uh, four years, and here's Obama in 2013. And the image seems a little bit different to a lot of progressive activists. (coughs) Um, The tarnish has now come on President Obama. And this is because of, of course, the Snowden revelations. So I want to go through those briefly, but to talk about the categories of what we've really learned uh, from those revelations and from the government's confirmation of them. Uh, The first, of course, is telephone metadata bulk collection. This is the one you've probably heard the most about, a collection of all telephone records by major telephone companies in the United States, Uh, both international and domestic telephone metadata. The date of the call, the number called, the number uh, calling it, and the length of time of the call. Uh, Obviously, very privacy sensitive information, uh, but information that according to a Supreme Court decision from the 1970s is not protected by the Fourth Amendment, which is why it can be collected in bulk. This was done originally completely on Bush's own executive authority. uh, But in 2006, as part of this uh, effort, during the second half of the Bush administration, it was put under uh, an order of the FISA court under a very, very broad interpretation of section 215 of the Patriot Act. And that's been reformed significantly, uh, ended actually, and and, uh, a new uh, process for obtaining that metadata by the USA Freedom Act just at the end of last year. Second, and I think more interesting, <laughs> um, vast internet surveillance under two programs. One is called Upstream Collection, and one is called PRISM. That's the debate we're going to be having next year. It's just beginning to start this year. And the reason is it comes under a different provision of the FISA law. 215 has been renewed, but bulk collection has been reformed last year. Uh, this part of the FISA law goes, uh, is going to expire at the end of next year. It's called Section 702 of FISA. And what it allows is it allows for the government to obtain the content of communications, not just the metadata, but the content of communications, both telephone and internet communications, that belong to a target that the NSA reasonably believes is physically located overseas and is a non-US citizen. Now, how does the NSA know this? Well, there's a variety of sources of intelligence. Uh, They get a selector that belongs to this target. Could be, for example, an email address, and they could say, according to our intelligence, this person is the selector belongs to this person uh, that we believe is located in Iran, Afghanistan, Russia, France, Germany, Australia, overseas, and uh, the data, however, is located in the United States. Some. Some internet company, Google, Facebook, some company like that has their data. Um, or it's transiting across the internet. And those are the differences between those two programs. Upstein Collection is about transiting communications, the traditional telecoms, um, and, and how do you grab it that way. PRISM is about going to those providers that have accounts and saying, please give us those targeted uh, account information. There are important differences between those two programs in terms of the privacy issues involved. Uh, But for right now, it's good enough to think this is all that data that belongs to everyone else, everyone around the world, happens to be here in the United States. And this is the way uh, the NSA can get it. And the reason it's so vast is because in the FISA Amendments (laughs) Act, passed in 2008, Section 702 of FISA, um, they allowed one court order by the FISA court to cover all this collection. Um, and according to recent transparency reports that I'll talk to in uh, just a second, um, that's about 90,000 targets that the NSA has uh, designated under Section 702 of FISA. Um, so a lot of targets. By contrast, the normal FISA, it's about 2,500 targets. Uh, those are people that are, uh, uh, have full probable cause orders Um, and generally are located inside the United States for the most part. Of course, uh, operations against heads of state. Now we're moving on. I'm just going to, before I move on to the next one, I'd like to point out these two programs I've just talked about are all under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. They all have court review uh, by that court, by that secret court. These next programs have no review whatsoever. This is the NSA's. Uh, ability to engage in intelligence collection outside the United States, um, where the collection takes place outside the United States under an executive order called Executive Order 12333. So that includes operations against heads of state, including allied heads of state. We heard about um, uh, Dilma Rousseff. We heard about uh, Angela Merkel, uh, obviously others as well. Um, Also, and and this is a, a really big one, programs that the NSA has to undermine Uh, Encryption and security on the internet. Uh, This is sometimes called signals intelligence enabling. So we're going to enable our collection because if we've got some security, we have to hack in to get it. Um, This, of course, is not new. This is what the NSA has been doing since its creation and even earlier. That's the point of the NSA is to break into communications. Ask yourself, do you think? If you don't think that there should be an agency doing that, then I think you're on the Snowden side and you want to get rid of this agency. Um, And then there's many, many more that I haven't talked about. These are the big ones, the big ones that that I want to talk about. Um, My basic point is that what we need to do to reform the NSA is that we need to expand three values that we have used partially. Uh, in many ways that are compromised to address the issue of domestic spying. And those values are transparency, accountability, and privacy. I'm going to go through each three, three of those values. Um, so backing up for a second, I don't want to give you a laundry list of these are the specific reforms uh, that I think should be made to FISA, uh, or these are the reforms that should be made to Executive Order 12333. I want to step back and think, what are we trying to achieve here? Uh, it's actually kind of a difficult thing to put intelligence under the rule of law. Intelligence has been seen often as being outside the rule of law. right? That's, that's what we think of when we think of intelligence. Uh, oper- that's why it's secret, right? Um, or as something that's just negative and should be banned. But putting intelligence under some sort of regime of control, now that's, that's not easy. Uh, and so I'm going to talk about those three ways we can do it, through transparency, accountability, and privacy. So first, I'm going to talk about transparency. And I'm going to talk about one of the more famous um, examples of a lack of transparency uh, and and the results of it. This is uh, my old boss, director of national intelligence, Jim Clapper. Uh, Senator Wyden of Oregon asked him this question at a public hearing shortly before the Snowden revelation started. Does the NSA collect any records of any kind on millions of Americans? That was was his question. And Clapper responds, no, sir, not wittingly. Now, we all know that this was a false answer at this point. What I'd like to do is unpack the question a little bit, give us some context here. Uh, I'm not trying to persuade you that Clapper was right or Clapper was wrong. I'm trying to get you to think about putting yourself in his shoes and imagining what you would do in his situation. So Wyden has been opposed to the bulk collection program now for quite a few years. uh, But it's a secret program. He's on the Intelligence Committee. That's why he knows about it. He's been briefed on it. Um, And he is trying to push the government to be more open about the program, to provoke a debate about it, Uh, and he's getting essentially stonewalled uh, by the government who says, we understand your concerns, Senator, but we think this is a properly classified program. Now, another piece of context is Senator Wyden is actually in the minority on the committee in viewing it this way. The rest of the committee thinks this is a good program. It's got good checks and balances, and we think it should be secret. So he can't take his concerns to the full committee and have a vote. Let's declassify this program. There's a provision in the Senate rules that would allow you to do that, by the way. Never been used. Um, uh, It would then have to go to the full Senate for a secret debate as to whether to release the information. Uh, By the way, the executive branch does not like this provision of the Senate rules one little bit. It's never been used, of course. So he wants to pressure the uh, administration to reveal this information. He provides the question a day in advance. Now, Clapper is sitting there thinking, what do I do to respond to this question? Well, it seems to me that there's a few options that you have. Uh, One is you can declassify the program and answer the question honestly. Yes, Senator, it turns out that we do actually have records on hundreds of millions of Americans. It's something called bulk telephone records metadata collection, and I'm declassifying it right now. And you know, I've directed people to review, explain some of our problems that we've had and what the protections are. Second option is to try to, as my mother would say, use the fuddle-duddle method. Uh, Well, you know, uh, I'm not sure. I didn't quite hear what that question was. You know, We're talking about a lot of records and data, and it's kind of secret. Maybe we should talk about this in closed session. Um, I think that it's pretty clear that when the question is worded this well, that doesn't work. Anything other than a no is a yes. Public knows the answer. if the answer was no, the gosh, the guy would say it, right? He's not going to say, uh, we have to talk about this in closed session. And then the third answer is to do what he did, lie. No, we don't. Next question. Um, and when you think about what you would do in his situation, remember you've got two obligations here. Uh, one obligation, of course, is the obligation to tell the truth in a congressional hearing. The other obligation is to protect sources and methods of classified information. And you have decided that this should remain secret. And actually, you're the person in the government who's supposed to make that decision, uh, with, of course, the supervision of the president. And the president agrees with you. So I think you've got a really tough situation. Now, there is another option, which is you're going to cancel the hearing. Um, that, I think, actually might be the real answer. Uh, just as a tactical question, if I were advising him back then, and I wasn't, I was already had already left the government. Um, but you know, I still think you're going to have to explain that. That's a little bit like, let's talk this about this in closed session. That's kind of a big alerting thing. So just think about that a little bit. Now, I, I contend that the answer becomes much easier if you think the program shouldn't have been classified in the first place. Then it's a really easy answer. You answer honestly, and you declassify the program. That's, in hindsight, I think the vast majority of people would probably agree that that is the correct answer. That's easy to do in retrospect. Think about what do we do now about other programs? How far do we go with transparency? That's really really the question we have to address. So the government basically uh, uh, got a certain amount of religion on this question after Snowden uh, made them. uh, And they uh, decided to launch a drive of official transparency. So um, here is Clapper with Obama. Obama directed Claffer to uh, launch the world's most unlikely tumbler, IC on the record. It's an official government tumbler which releases declassified documents about NSA surveillance programs, uh, which are impenetrable to all but the most uh, specialized of specialists. Uh, but that if you are a specialized specialist, you are constantly refreshing IC on the record to see what new document is going to come out. Um, I didn't actually understand because I am not a hip young person that a Tumblr was supposed to be something that you did to have a fan site for your, you know, your favorite uh, celebrity. Uh, but that is actually a more usual use of that particular platform. So this is a very kind of Barack Obama response to privacy. Let's let's do social media inter engagement. Now there were thousands of pages of documents on this Tumblr and. Here's an interesting little factoid. More than a year ago, uh, this was actually double the number of documents released by Snowden through leaks. Um, And this was dynamite information. These weren't 1950s declassified documents about the Cold War. These were documents about current intelligence programs previously classified at the highest level. in addition, the DNI has proposed or has actually adopted and has now issued on two occasions an annual transparency report. This is still pretty, pretty general information, uh, but it's a lot more meaningful than what happened before 2013. That's where I got that 90,000 targets number from. That's from their transparency report. It used to be they would have reported, we have a certain number of orders that the FISA court has granted. They wouldn't have said, oh yeah, and one of those orders covers 90,000 targets. So it's a little more meaningful if you have those kind of numbers. There's still some very hard issues in this area, and I want to explore them further in the book. Uh, Overclassification is rampant throughout the government. Uh, It still is rampant throughout the government. And despite the efforts of the ODNI uh, to push through documents through something like IC on the record, it's very hard to turn the bureaucracy around. uh, When you have so many decisions that documents are classified, uh, here's an interesting uh, uh, example. When the Defense Intelligence Agency produced a report on the damage that Snowden had done through his leaks, which a lot of people who were trying to defend the administration wanted to be able to tout, they classified almost all of it, except for the conclusion, which is this is very serious damage. Now, it turns out that in 2013, uh, maybe that would have been different in 2001 or 2002. Uh, that did not convince anybody who wasn't already convinced. Nobody's going to take the government's word for it that Snowden's disclosures were very damaging. Um, and and many, of the, many of the redactions in this entirely redacted document were the result of the DIA's decision to adhere to this kind of uh, policy that whenever the media talks about something that was leaked, it's still classified. So much of these redactions are just discussing what Snowden was talking about on CNN. That's rampant over-classification and actually, uh, e- even in a tactical sense, actually hurt the government. Uh, another hard issue is standing. And I don't want to get into too much detail here, but basically The rule for challenging surveillance in the United States requires that you prove that you've been subject to some kind of surveillance before you can make that challenge. Uh, The ACLU and uh, Amnesty International launched a challenge, uh, which was coincidentally decided almost right before the Snowden revelations began, with the wonderful name Amnesty International versus Clapper, yet the same Clapper, um, in which they found some very good plaintiffs who had some very good reasons why they might be under surveillance, not just you or me, people who represented inmates in Guantanamo, international uh, journalists who were talking to heads of state. Uh, the likelihood of their being under surveillance, especially as we look at it today, based on what we know now, was actually quite high. And the Supreme Court said, no, this is too speculative. You can't make this challenge. Um, that, that makes it more difficult to have transparency. And then the state secrets privilege, a very related concept <coughs> to the standing issue is essentially the argument that when a secret is important enough, the government can come in and kind of like an atomic bomb blow up the entire case and say, you can't hear this case, judiciary, because if we were to fairly adjudicate this case, it would endanger state secrets. And the Obama administration has uh, certainly not relaxed any of the Justice Department lawyers invocations of the standing doctrine or of the state secret doctrine. So this is just my way of trying to not oversell the transparency drive, um, to say that there are still some very hard issues in transparency that we haven't addressed, um, but to give the government credit where credit is due. Another kind of transparency is corporate transparency. Um, Google actually was a major leader in this area. They issued the first corporate transparency report in 2010. These reports detail the kinds of requests the government is uh, giving to these large companies and what they're doing with the requests. It's a way of holding themselves accountable, saying, you know, we received 10,000 requests last year or, you know, 5,000, and we complied with 80% of them. We fought, you know, we fought 10% of them. That's the kind of information that are in in transparency reports. Now, uh, those reports up until 2013. Uh, the Justice Department was being very, very close-minded about reporting anything involving national security. said, we're okay with you talking about your criminal uh, uh, demands under criminal law, under search warrants, and things like that. When it comes to FISA, when it comes to intelligence surveillance, uh, we don't want you reporting this kind of information. So the companies were in a huge bind. Snowden was sort of giving the impression around the world that they were just in bed with the NSA that you know, basically there's a cable that you plug into Google and that whoo, it all gets sucked into the NSA. And they were like, that's not true. We're, we're only providing a relatively small number compared to our total users. It's under the FISA court, et cetera, but we can't talk about it. So they actually filed suit in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which is a very unusual place to file suit, um, under both the statute and the First Amendment to say this is violating our First Amendment rights. Fascinating suit. The government contested that and said, no, we have to be able to prevent you from giving detailed information about your national security um, requests so that our adversaries don't know which providers are getting lots of requests from the government, which providers are getting no requests from the government. Then they might shift which providers they choose to use. That was the government's argument. Um, And basically, both sides uh, backed down. And there was a compromise reached um, in which the Justice Department agreed to not contest the ability of uh, companies to issue transparency reports, but with certain, um, uh, basically, with uh, less detail than the companies really wanted. Uh, and, and what they said is, you can report these, um, you can report these national security requests, but you can only do it in bands of a thousand. So we received between 0 and 999 requests, or we received between 1,000 and 1,999 requests. We're in one of these bands, which still gives you a lot more information than before, um, but it's not the level of detail the companies were looking for. Here we also have some hard issues. Uh, The two issues I want to talk about very quickly are. The startup rule and warrant canaries, I'll take those uh, in the opposite order. Uh, A warrant canary, also called the issue of the zero, can a company issue a transparency report that says, we have received zero requests under this provision of FISA, or perhaps under any provision of any national security statute? Well, the company would say, "Of, of course we can do that. It's called the First Amendment, and we haven't received any requests. So we're under no obligation to say that we haven't. The government says, if you do that, you destroy our ability to obfuscate which companies are receiving requests and which companies aren't receiving requests. The most extreme example of such a uh, zero transparency report uh, might be what's called a warrant canary. So the canary dies if there's a leak in the coal mine. Here, what you do is you have a transparency report section of your website that says, how many many requests have you received? Zero. And you have a nice big canary there. Well, even if the government issues you an order that says um, you're not allowed to tell anybody you've received this order, the transparency report suddenly disappears, poof, and everybody knows you must have received an order. That's the the, uh, uh, one way of thinking about the problem. And whether or not you think that the government should be able to gag a company in this way may have a lot to do with whether or not you think this is a clever way for the companies to get around government gag orders, or whether you think this is a major damaging um, uh, uh, tactic for national security. Uh, There's also another issue. Uh, The companies agreed that they would not issue transparency reports for a period of two years if they had any new capabilities. This is the new capabilities uh, compromise that the company's made, Um, sometimes called the startup rule. So, I'm creating a new secure app, you know, and I'm issuing my transparency reports. Uh, Everything's hunky dory, then, hooray, my app, my company has been bought by Google. Um, And then Google says, well, this is a new capability, so we're not issuing any transparency reports about your service for two years. Uh, Important for the government because they essentially wanted to keep. The adversary guessing about whether those services were um, uh, whether they were uh, uh, under surveillance. So these are some issues about transparency uh, that I'm just trying to basically tease the idea that um, it's really easy if you don't like surveillance, make everything transparent. It's really easy if you think that you can trust the government, but if you're like me and you think maybe some, some surveillance is necessary and you don't completely trust the government. Now it becomes really hard. How much transparency can we have to avoid putting people like Jim Clapper in the situation in which he was before, Uh, to make sure that uh, we put before the public enough information to have an informed Democratic debate about surveillance? I'm going to talk a little bit about accountability. And uh, in this section, I'm going to talk mostly about the FISA court. Uh, And it's a court with few friends. Uh, This is a sketch of the closed, locked door of the FISA court uh, made by a sketch artist who I guess uh, snuck into the courthouse and went to a part of the courthouse. I don't think she was really supposed to be, and sketched this door. That's about all we have seen of the inside of the FISA court, unless you've actually been there because you have a top secret clearance and you work for the Justice Department, uh, or maybe for Yahoo. Um, One thing that's interesting about institutions that, um, that are set up to reform a system is that they can tend to get calcified. They can tend to think, well, we're a great court. Every, every criticism that's been received, they don't know about us. Um, and so the proposal, which was endorsed by President Obama in 2013 uh, for a special advocate to argue essentially a different point of view from the government, which the FISA court otherwise wouldn't have, uh, actually met some resistance. From Judge Bates, who had been the presiding judge of the FISA Court, part of that is he's a conservative pro executive power kind of guy, uh, but I think part of it is a bit of resentment of hey, we're good judges, you know what do you mean that our wonderful interpretation of the Patriot Act was crazy? I mean, what are you talking about? you know we thought about all the issues that some you know ACLU lawyer would have told us. Um, so I think it's an important reminder that you can't always trust reform institutions when they need to be further reformed. Uh, they tend to, to resist change in the same way, uh, even though they were they have a reform mission. Now, I, I call this a court with two friend, few friends because uh, many of you may think that the FISA court is a rubber stamp. And there are perfectly good reasons why you might think that. Uh, one is the extraordinarily high number of orders that are approved and the tiny number that have been Uh, ever rejected. Uh, Another, we have even more reason for thinking that because of these very expansive uh, interpretations of FISA that we now know about. So those are some good reasons. Uh, Defenders of the court will say that's exaggerated, um, and they have some points as well. Uh, One of those is that uh, usually the government doesn't present a case and get a denial if the court you know, resist the uh, application, they'll usually withdraw it and modify it, or maybe just withdraw it altogether. Uh, so don't get a complete picture from just those, those numbers uh, of, of approvals and denials. Uh, and if you look at the big issues around PRISM, upstream collection, and bulk collection that I just told you about, and you read those opinions, especially the opinions in which the court is angry at the NSA for its failure to comply with its rules, um, you get a better sense that you know they really are taking their job seriously when it comes to serving as a check on the executive branch, um, and they are not simply being a rubber stamp. The other side says, you know, it's important to remember that there's another perspective uh, that dislikes the FISA court, and that's again that Cheney perspective I was talking about. Uh, Cheney's counsel, David Addington uh, told a good friend of mine, Jack Goldsmith, in 2004 we're one bomb away from getting rid of that obnoxious court. You know, the threat of terrorism is going to cause Americans to wake up and realizing having judges involved in intelligence surveillance was a huge mistake in the 1970s, and we're just going to repeal it and say the president should do his job. So this is a court with few friends. And part of the reason I've tried to defend it is precisely for that reason. I think it's an extraordinarily important institution that helps protect our civil liberties. I think it needs, however, to be reformed. So here are some ways to strengthen it. This is uh, the building in which the FISA court is currently located, uh, the US uh, courthouse in DC. Uh, Just uh, as an aside here, it used to be located on the seventh floor of the Justice Department. So, at least we've moved it out of the Justice Department building across the street into an actual courthouse. I'd like to do additional things to make it more like a real court. We already have the special advocate, so that's very good. Uh, some uh, three key reforms I would advocate for one is to extend the remit of the court. You know, before uh, these expansive programs I've talked about, the court just approved surveillance applications. And the thought was, well, you can't do that overseas. You, know, you can do that for the FBI when they do their targeted surveillance inside the country. But when it comes to all these huge, vast intelligence programs, judges can't be involved. Well, we've just shown that that's not true. Judges can be involved. They can be involved in these collection programs that occur with uh, PRISM, with upstream collection, with bulk metadata, all of those taking place, the collection taking place on the United States Soil, but not in the typical targeted way, so why not extend that to the foreign programs I was just talking about um, that don 't have any review right now? Uh, difficult to do, but an important uh, reform. Uh, one thing we can do is we can add magistrates to the court. The court currently just has uh, eleven judges, twelve judges, I think uh, so there 's a limit to how many decisions you can put before the judiciary you can uh, you can scale back your mass surveillance uh, and, and do only targeted surveillance. But what if you have a lot of targets? Well, uh, right now, the only choice we have is uh, if we have a lot of targets, we do something like they do for Section 702 of FISA, one order, 90,000 targets. Um, if we had a core of magistrates, what if we had 100 magistrates working underneath those 11 judges? There's already a provision in the FISA law itself for magistrates. There'd be a lot more judicial brain power to devote to making discrete decisions about, um, uh, about how to judge those uh, those applications. And that gives you more checks and balances. Most important would be to give the FISA court a special master or a chief technologist. I think this is probably the most important unfinished business we have. You know, the answer, of course, to a problem involving a legal institution, if you're a lawyer, is Let's hire more lawyers. That's what we did by having a special advocate. Well, we got lawyers for the government. We got judges who were lawyers. And we have lawyers at the NSA and the justice. We got all these lawyers. A lot of the problems had to do with lawyer technologist communication problems. And if the court doesn't know what questions to ask to challenge the NSA and the government's presentation, it's never going to be able to discover those problems. So I think perhaps more important then a special advocate would be a chief technologist. And a special master is an ancient sort of legal practice for appointing an expert to help the court uh, when the court needs specialized expertise. So it would be something uh, that would be a normal thing for a normal court to do. Of course, accountability is not just about courts. Um, There are other ways beyond the judiciary to hold uh, institution accountable. Some of them we already do. There's a lot of executive branch oversight and compliance. Uh, This is the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board right here, has played an important role uh, issuing two and about to issue another report. Uh, Some of the best reports, actually, that have informed the debate about surveillance after Snowden have come from this independent bipartisan body that has gotten pretty much very little, no attention. I went and uh, gave uh, uh, some remarks to them at a public meeting they had at Philadelphia's Constitution Center. And I think the number of people in the room was smaller than this. Um, But hugely interesting, hugely important. Um, How do we connect the public better with that? And of course, improving congressional oversight creates all sorts of problems. Now, my third value was privacy. I wanted to talk about privacy. And here, I want to talk about privacy in two ways. Um, I want to talk about privacy as a tale of law and a tale of technology. Um, For lawyers, when we think of privacy, if we think of a giant. We're going to think of Louis D. Brandeis, who wrote uh, a right to privacy in the Harvard Law Review at the end of the 19th century, um, who wrote the dissent in Olmsted versus United States, saying that um, the government shouldn't be able to engage in warrantless wiretapping when the majority uh, was on the other side of that question. No one comes close to Brandeis when it comes to privacy in law. Um, And then on the computer science cryptography side, the giant is Alan Turing, um, who uh, essentially created this modern field of the science of computer science. And in in computer science classes uh, involving theoretical computer science, almost every problem begins with, imagine a Turing machine. Uh, a universal machine that you can uh, figure out uh, how, what you can actually do in theory with a computer if you had infinite computing power. So first I'll talk about privacy in the law, which I know a little bit more about. Um, we think about standards for reasonable searches. That's how lawyers think about privacy when it comes to government surveillance. We think about searches must be reasonable. That's the Fourth Amendment. What is a search becomes the big question, or a big question. I talked about metadata. The key issue there is that there's a Supreme Court decision that says that's not a search at all. So it's out of the Fourth Amendment. You can have some statutory protections, uh, but you're not going to get anywhere with that case saying it isn't a search. And so we get lots of cases about that question. That's a binary either or question. But even if something is a search, then the question is, when is a search reasonable? And there, the biggest question usually is, does it require a warrant? And the general rule is, it requires a warrant unless there's an exception that says that it doesn't require a warrant, uh, which sounds like the classic lawyer's answer, it depends. Uh, But it's a little better than that. The warrant requirement is the presumption. That's what you're normally supposed to do with a search. If you're trying to do a search, something that actually is a search, Without a warrant, well, now we have to have an argument as to why it is that you think you can do that. That's the way lawyers think about searches, privacy. Let's think about how technologists think about privacy. Well, we have a field called cryptography, which can provide guarantees of security for communications. You're communicating across an untrusted channel. You want to prevent surveillance. Uh, Cryptography is the science that explains whether or not you can reliably prevent that. Uh, One way of thinking about that is that, you know, can Alice talk to Bob without Eve listening in? And right here, I almost felt like I should put Ram Rivest up there, because I've been told uh, that he actually invented the use of Alice and Bob. uh, And now everybody uses it for everything all the time. That's the question you're asking about a crypto system. Uh, That's often a way of thinking about privacy from a computer science point of view. And here, really the question is not whether it's a search. But is a system secure or is it broken? If The system is secure, that means that we can reliably say that Alice can talk to Bob without Eve, Eve listening in. If the system is broken, that means there's a vulnerability. And it either is or it isn't. Whether you can exploit that vulnerability or not um, you know, is a question of how difficult it is to do that. But that's what cryptographers think about. And, and the key point here is that there's no magic that allows for access only for the good guys. This is a key difference in the way that lawyers and technologists think about privacy. Think again about you know, what's the best I can guarantee you as a lawyer is that it's a search and it requires a warrant. That's the best guarantee I can give you for privacy. If it's not a search, you're you know, screwed. <laughs> if it doesn't require a warrant, Well, you know, there's probable cause and all that, but you're basically relying on the government making those determinations because there's an exception to the warrant requirement. Uh, But if we get to, you know, search with a warrant, that's about as as good as you can get. Um, Technologists don't think that way. If you can get access, you can get access, and um, it's not technologically secure if you can. That's really where the Apple versus IBM. Uh, case comes, comes into play. Did I say IBM? <laughs> <laughs> Apple versus FBI. I want to talk a little bit about privacy enhancing technology for a moment. Um, this is the seal of the, uh, so we're used to thinking of advances in technology as mostly as threatening privacy. Um, and a good example of that is uh, DARPA's short-lived total information awareness program. Uh, which they announced with great fanfare right after 9/11 in a very naive way, um, and this is in fact this is not a mock-up or you know some kind of satire. This is the actual seal uh, that they had, um, and it says "Total Information Awareness," and it says "DARPA," and it says "Scientia est potentia," which means "Knowledge is power," and there's this giant eye looking at the world. So you know this is the way they were thinking about it, and they told us this in 2002. So you know, maybe uh, we shouldn't have been that shocked by Snowden. Now, these two organizations, uh, DARPA, which uh, had the Total Information Awareness Program, and then something you probably haven't heard of, IARPA, which is the intelligence community's version of that uh, and that I worked with when I was in in the the Office of Director of National Intelligence. Uh, It turns out they don't only do research on how do we achieve total information awareness, they also do research on privacy enhancing technologies. How can we use knowledge technology to protect privacy? This became a big issue after the Snowden revelations because essentially Obama was looking for an alternative. They are getting a lot of criticism about our bulk collection of telephone metadata and other kinds of bulk signals intelligence programs. I keep hearing that there are these cryptographic tools you can use to maybe collect only what you're trying to collect in ways that are innovative and would allow the NSA to do its job. Can you please tell me if any of these can be used to replace, to replace bulk signals intelligence collection? Well, this task was given to the National Academy of Sciences, and their conclusion was rather disappointing. They essentially said, well, we can't fully replace bulk collection. Um, Essentially, the biggest criticism of this conclusion, uh, I think this conclusion is correct, but I also think that, in a way, they took the question too literally. There's going to be a cost with using some of these cryptographic tools. Uh, If you just say, go ahead and get all the data in the clear and don't use anything to protect it, uh, you're going to have more intelligence capabilities than if you say, use this particular privacy enhancing tool. The question is, what is that cost and is it worth it? And that's going to depend on the circumstances. I want to talk about very briefly uh, two amazing technologies. Before I get off this, I was going to say one of the more um, unfortunate statements that the Bulk Signals Intelligence report from the National Academy of Sciences used was there is no technological magic. Well, it turns out that when it comes to cryptography, cryptography is all about magic. Uh, It's all about doing things that you wouldn't think are possible. Think about cryptography just the most basic type of cryptography. I want to send you a message. Anybody can read it, but only you are going to be able to decrypt it. That's kind of magical. Um, And there is much more sophisticated stuff that exists today. Uh, Two I will talk about very briefly. Uh, One is called private information retrieval. This can offer amazing advantages uh, as an alternative to bulk collection of signals intelligence. Let's say that you are the NSA and you want to get certain (laughs) records from a large database, but the person who has the database, you don't trust them. Uh, They don't have any top secret clearance. They don't have any, um, you know, you don't have time to do it. What's the easiest way to deal with that problem? Well, please give us your entire database and we will get the records we need. Um, And in fact, that is, I believe, the correct statement of the trivial answer to the problem of bulk of private information retrieval in the, in the technical literature. Um, well, you can do private information retrieval by retrieving the entire database, and then the database owner doesn't know anything about what you found out. Private information retrieval tries to make that a little bit better by saying, let's try to encrypt the query in a fashion so that it returns only the data you've asked for, but the database owner learns nothing about your query. That could be very useful. In some circumstances, is a substitute for bulk collection. You get a little bit more sophisticated with something called secure multi-party computation. Um, that's based on the idea that what if I don't want to just return the record that matches my query? I actually want to do some. some I want to ask you a question that requires some computation. Maybe I don't want to just have the metadata records that belong to a list of targets. I want to have all those records that are in c- connection to them, out one hop, out two hops. I don't know what those records are because I haven't asked you for them yet. You do, but you don't know what they are yet because I haven't given you my target list. So without (laughs) cryptography, you could give me all your data, problem solved. Or I could trust you and say, let's build some secret rooms and clear some people and set it up uh, so that you're going to be doing a lot of this classified analysis and I trust it won't leak out. Secure multi-party computation uh, avoids that whole problem. Now, these have been known about for many, many years, but they weren't very practical. DARPA and IARPA spent millions of dollars to try to make them more practical and have achieved extraordinary results. Um, uh, Even in 2014, there was a result uh, that would have made these kinds of use of uh, technology scalable. Basically, they were trying to reduce the friction, the amount of information that you needed, uh, the the, the amount of costs that this imposed. Going dark. So shifting from what technologies can we use to make the NSA's job easier to collect information to what technologies do we use as citizens to protect our privacy, and then what do we do about it when the government comes calling and saying, well, we need, we need, your, we need your iPhone here. Come out with your iPhone open. Um, I think there are three possible policies here. I'm still considering exactly which one I think is the right one, uh, but I want to throw them up here for your consideration because um, they're different. The first policy is what the FBI actually wants. There must be backdoors in all communications. They they they've realized that the word backdoor is not a good one, so they don't say it that way. Uh, but that is in fact what they have been advocating for. We should have a way to get in with a warrant. Remember I told you, this is the way a lawyer thinks. I have a warrant. That should be enough. right? There isn't anything better than that. Alan Turing would say, well, actually there is. It's like you can't get it ever. Um, but maybe for society, we don't like that. So that's policy one. Lots of problems with that policy. The biggest po- problem is it's very hard to keep those back doors from being abused by another government, by hackers. By, you know, it creates massive insecurity in your whole system, because now you've got a vulnerability. Second policy, which I think is the policy that the FBI is asking for in this particular case, is if your device or service can be broken, the government can make you break it. So notice that there's a subtle difference between those two policies. The first one says you have to design your service to be broken already. The second one says you might be able to design a service that's foolproof. And if you do, you know, too bad. You can't help us. But if you don't, and if it's pretty easy, especially if it's not that big a burden for you to break it, you're going to have to do it. And we'll use something called the All Ritz Act to make you do that. A third policy is lawful hacking, which is basically the policy that says the government's going to be doing the hacking here. Um, and maybe they, they can't dragoon, dragoon you into helping, uh, helping them hack the service, but they're going to be doing some hacking. And I guess there's a fourth policy, which I didn't put up here, which I sometimes call the full Snowden, and that is the government is not allowed to hack. I, I'm not sh- I didn't even bother putting it on here, because I, I sort of feel like, come on. I mean, you know, if, if you think the government should ever engage in surveillance, and it's easy for them to break something, um, and it's not going to be dragooning somebody into helping them, uh, it seems like that's, that's a hard case to make. But maybe I, I should put that up there. I want to talk finally about human rights. Um, this conversation so far has been, although I've talked about global surveillance, I haven't talked about it in a human rights context. Um, there's Eleanor Roosevelt with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This provision that you can't be subject to arbitrary or unlawful interference with privacy or correspondence dates back to the origins of human rights as a branch of law uh, to the Universal Declaration. Uh, It's in Article 12 of the Universal Declaration. It's also in Article 17 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, to which the US is a signatory. Um, And in a slightly different form, it's in Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. And that's actually uh, the provision, the Human Rights Treaty, that has had the most interpretation of this right. What does that really mean? Arbitrary or unlawful interference. First of all, what's an interference? Is it an interference if I collect your data and I put it on a server for the NSA to access later? Or is it only interference when I do access it? That's a sort of a variation on the collection problem or the search issue. What's arbitrary? What if I'm doing it you know, to investigate crime or to uh, engage in intelligence gathering that's necessary to defend my country against international terrorists. Um, interesting point that actually they did some they did some polling around the world in 2014. What do you think of the NSA spying on you? And what I thought was interesting, I did not find it surprising that large majorities of the rest of the world did not like that idea very much. Um, in fact, they liked that idea even, even less than the idea of the NSA spying on Americans, which is the thing we think is forbidden. Um, but then you said. What do you think of the NSA spying on terrorists? And even people overseas, uh, for the large part, said, yeah, we agree with that, which is kind of an interesting finding when you think about it. They, you know, they, they trusted that there were some reasons to be involved in surveillance. Maybe they didn't trust the NSA was doing that, but they, they thought there were some reasons to do it. Because Europe has been such a leader in privacy, I want to talk just a little bit about uh, Europe's reaction to the Snowden revelations. Um, and in doing that, um, I'll go back to our trip that Alan mentioned to Brussels. Uh, this is a picture of me in front of the, the great symbol of Brussels, the Mannequin Peace Fountain. Um, Brussels is a rather, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of staid, uh, conservative place, doesn't have a whole lot of big, uh, you know, iconic things in it. European Court of Justice is there. um, And they were asked to interpret something called the safe harbor, which is what allows data about Europeans to be transferred to third countries, uh, even though the Europeans have strong privacy rules. (laughs) And essentially, the United States has lots of data about Europeans, a lot of companies, um, not just Google and Facebook and the internet giants, but major companies that have all sorts of other kinds of data, over 4,000 of them, um, have agreed to sign up to something called the Safe Harbor, where they promise to abide by these European privacy rules, or at least something like them. Um, And then the Europeans say, that's okay with us, because you have something called the Federal Trade Commission that's going to come down on you if you violate your premises. That's how the Safe Harbor works. Well, along come a person called Maximilian Schrems, who says, hey, I don't care what Facebook says they're doing with my data. Uh, Maybe they have the best intentions in the world, but they're subject to this whole Section 702 of FISA. And the reason he knows about all of those programs is, of course, because of Snowden. And so now we have to decide, is the United States a safe place to store your data? Or does the existence of these programs mean there, there, there can't be a safe harbor for data? European Court of Justice ruled in favor of Maximilian Schrems and ruled against Safe Harbor. This was a huge thing for transatlantic commerce. They had two basic objections. The first was, your laws permit you to engage in generalized surveillance. Remember those 90,000 targets I talked about? That's just too broad. And there's also very little or no real effective redress for people who are potentially under surveillance. we're still dealing with the aftermath of this decision. Uh, the U.S. and the EU agreed on something they're calling the Privacy Shield, which I predict will fool nobody. Um, it's essentially the exact same thing as the Safe Harbor, only they called it something else. And so they hoped that, okay, um, we don't have the Safe Harbor anymore, but now we have the Privacy Shield. And we read some, you know, uh, we read some of the things that people like me uh, said about how great the NSA's safeguards are, so we're good now. Uh, I don't think the European Court of Justice is going to be okay with that. um, But it takes a very long time for the European court system to work. Um, There are also challenges in the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, What all these challenges do is they put before international courts in the same way that um, we're seeing increasingly decisions in domestic courts squarely, the whole issue of bulk collection, mass surveillance. Can countries engage in gathering vast amounts of data without individualized findings by judges that you are a criminal and therefore you should be under surveillance? If you have a vast intelligence program that collects that data, is that a violation of that right I just told you? Is that an arbitrary interference with your privacy? And certainly, a lot of people might say yes. The biggest argument, I think, against that, of course, is the giant hypocrisy that is involved in European countries saying that our laws are so terrible. Their laws are worse. Their laws basically allow for broad intelligence surveillance without even having something like the FISA court. Um, So that's very hypocritical. This guy, Francois de la Rochefoucauld, Uh, is the he's attributed to have said this wonderful phrase, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. And when I think about this phrase, I I think there are two possible ways of interpreting it, uh, the cynical way and the hopeful way. The cynical way is this is some foppish French aristocrat who thought it was cute and funny to say that, aha, well, Yes, you say that I am doing the thing that you hate and that I am Well, I am just paying tribute to your virtue by being hypocritical. It's a license to be uh, hypocritical in that cynical way. I think the more hopeful way to think about it is how can you really have reform if the people advocating for reform have to have completely pure hands? Um, Maybe they're advocating for a standard that they themselves don't meet. But in advocating for that, they will set that standard. And then that standard will come back to them. And they're going to have to clean up their own act as well. That's the way I try to think of it. And so I think all of this hypocrisy on the part of many other countries in criticizing the United States, although it may be frustrating for American officials, is actually an opening for surveillance reform. So we say, yeah, you have a good point. Um, We should have narrower rules for our surveillance. We should have more checks and balances. We should make our FISA court more open. We should have some kinds of redress. Um, We're not going to go as far as you want, but here's the system that we have come up with. We've reformed it further. Oh, where's your FISA court? Where's your redress for your intelligence agencies? Where's your transparency report for all the uh, uh, intelligence operations that you do over there in France? Uh, in, in the DGSE or in the UK with GCHQ or in Germany or in Brazil or any other country uh, do you have have you, have you reformed your own um, your own surveillance operations so it's it's my contention that we are still in this surveillance reform moment um, that we have had some initial reforms that I've talked about in this talk on transparency. We've had some improvements to the FISA court. Um, We've had some narrowing of bulk collection when it came to telephone metadata. Um, But that we are only at the beginning of this process. Next year, Section 702 of FISA will expire. And there will be a big debate inside the United States about whether to renew it, whether to let it expire, or whether to reform it. the court decisions from the European Court of Human Rights, uh, the decision about the privacy shield, uh, they will put additional pressure on uh, for surveillance reform. And that pressure, by the way, uh, maybe Americans may not care much about the privacy rights of foreigners, but Google and Facebook care about it, uh, at least enough to, uh, they, they want to look like they care about it, so I think we're in that moment. And I think that other countries around the world uh, will find that they will also have to uh, start answering some of these difficult questions. Now, I, I don't want I, I to be Pollyannish about this. I think this is a question that is going to be mostly one for democratic and open societies. I don't think that this kind of pressure is going to do a whole lot to reform the Russian intelligence services or the Chinese intelligence services or the Iranian intelligence services, Um, although they may have to make hypocritical statements about how they have put in place a new court or something like that. Um, But I think that it's still an extraordinary moment for us um, to bring surveillance out of the shadows. Thank Thank you. So we have a little time for questions, and I'm happy to take uh, any of your questions.
0: Yes. So there's a sense that there's a lot of societal change in beliefs about privacy and how much privacy people value. Is that? Do you think that's true, and is that going to have an impact on some of your conclusions or some of the reform possibilities?
1: I think it is true, but I also think it's continuing to develop. Um, and the analogy that I would use, is um, when we went from not having telephones at all to having telephones. Uh, it took us actually several decades to figure out what do we call a wiretap on a telephone. In 1928, the um, Supreme Court said, that's not a search. That's, there's nothing physical going on here. You're not going into somebody's house. You're just putting a device on a wire that's outside their house. That can't be a search. Um, and it wasn't until 1967 that the Supreme Court reversed that and said, yeah, it is. So um, figuring out what, is, what kinds of data that we produce with all of our devices deserves protection, that we expect to have legal protection, or that we expect not to have protection, is extremely um, unclear at the moment. And part of that is because societal attitudes have not yet fully um, coalesced around that issue. But I would suggest that the reaction to the Snowden revelations, uh, if it proves anything, proves that the notion that the idea that we should have privacy is dead is actually false. Because people were very concerned about this. You know, If people thought, well, it's the internet, it's data, of course it's not private, then the reaction to Snowden would have been a big shrug. So what? Who's this crazy guy? Uh, instead, there was a nerve that was struck. So that makes me feel that people do actually care about their privacy. Now, did they think that? Their privacy is protected? Absolutely not. They don't. And in a large extent, they're right to think that. Yeah. Um, the question in regards to the NSA's policies on uh, records being produced. It says on the website that they'll honor requests from individuals uh, pursuant to the Privacy Act. That uh, is true. Has there been any guidelines about what information that they actually will release back to the individual? And who
0: who is monitoring their compliance with it? So we actually dealt with this
1: exact question in our office. Um, it, it is certainly true that they are subject to the Privacy Act. But when it comes to their surveillance programs, there is an exemption for national security. And you can see why. Um, it would be a pretty neat trick if all you had to do was go to the NSA website and say, please give me my records that you've collected under FISA Section 702. And they said, oh, yeah, you're under surveillance, and here's the records we've collected. Um, So the Privacy Act actually was um, considered to be, by some, a possible answer to the European objections to the lack of redress. And one of the objections was, hey, your Privacy Act only applies to Americans. So there's legislation pending in Congress right now to extend that to at least selected countries that we might have a data sharing agreement with. That might be a good government reform, and it would allow a European to file a Privacy Act notice with the NSA or anybody else. Uh, But they're not going to get information back if the reason that the NSA has records on them is that they're a target of foreign intelligence interest uh, because that's classified. And there's exemptions for the Privacy Act. There are things you can get that have to do with employees. There's, 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 you know, it's not necessarily completely futile to file a Privacy Act with an intelligence agency, but it's not going to go to their core intelligence function. And you can see why. Yeah?
0: Um, You used the term the enemy when uh, Clapper and others were trying to justify the um, privacy the secrecy of the programs. Is there a way in which the term the enemy is thought of differently um, by government lawyers as opposed to the intelligence community Who Well it's the, an interesting it's interesting that
1: you should point that out. Um, I, I guess I used that word without thinking about it very much and maybe that says something about the mentality of where I used to work. Um, the right word might more be adversary um, so it w- could be a variety of different of different potential threats to national security it could be um, international terrorist organizations. Uh, it could be potentially hostile nation states, uh, foreign intelligence services that are attempting to recruit spies inside our intelligence services. Um, so those are those are seen as the adversary in the sense that uh, we're trying to gather intelligence about them and about their intentions. Um, when you come to spying on friendly countries or for broader foreign policy reasons, Um, Yeah, it gets a little bit more gray, doesn't it? Um, Certainly, Angela Merkel isn't the enemy. Uh, The people of Brazil aren't the enemy. Um, And that's not the purpose of those intelligence programs. The purpose is to discover useful intelligence for foreign affairs purposes. And it may be, and I've, I've advocated this, that there are types of collection of intelligence that we say are okay for real threats, like terrorists, and we say are not OK for general intelligence purposes. In fact, um, one of the reforms, I didn't mention it specifically, Presidential Policy Directive 28 that Obama adopted in January of 2014 does exactly that. And it says, if you're doing signals intelligence collection in bulk, you can only do it for these specific security threats. And he lists six of them. Um, you couldn't do it for broad foreign affairs collection. So. It is too simplistic to talk about the enemy. It's a way of thinking that actually can uh, blind us, I think, to the real issues at stake. But of course, there are actually enemies out there. So it's important to think, I think, of those two things in different categories. Yeah. It's my understanding that there's a growing movement in the in 21st century human rights uh, thought that, that internet privacy on the internet is uh, more relevant You you touched on it before uh, with uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, Does this growing sentiment about human rights on the internet lend some sort of help to the reform uh, from inside and out, especially with regards to uh, whistleblowing? Because it's not just prosecution and out. It might also be an element of political persecution when it involves human rights. Especially Uh, Snowden being broad. So okay, so I I think those are a lot of different questions. Uh, In general, The human right that I just mentioned is underdeveloped. Um, It has started to become a lot more developed in the last uh, 10 years or so. Uh, The biggest uh, area in which that's been developed is in Europe, I think, because of the European Convention and because of the European Data Protection Directive. Um, Certainly, the idea that there are limits to intelligence surveillance um, beyond the specific constitutional limits um, is, is a new idea for a lot of people in the intelligence community. Um, But it's, I think, unquestionably true. Now, when you get to the question of, is somebody like Stoughton a human rights figure, certainly his supporters view him that way. Uh, And the European Parliament, I think, has said we should do something to protect him. Uh, But then you get back a little bit to this hypocrisy thing. Um, That's what European parliamentarians say. That's not what the European intelligence services think. I guess the question is, you know, yes, you. There's an aspect of human rights involved in internet privacy, um, and the debate that Snowden started certainly touches on that. Um, it doesn't necessarily follow from that that Snowden should be forgiven for what he did and that he shouldn't suffer any consequences, uh, or not, you know, shouldn't suffer any any potential. Uh, criminal penalties, but it's a factor to be considered. Absolutely, I think you had a question.
0: Um, so nine: uh, Jay Stanley wrote the report um, recommendation for privacy, um, and uh, so you worked both in the ACLU and in the government. Do you think we still have a gap between of, um, of private oversight needed? Do you agree with that report written? Um, that we need to strengthen the you touched on the PCLOB, but that only covers terrorism. That doesn't cover. Um, well, that's a technical point. Yeah,
1: that's a technical point about the PCLOB statute, which I think is correct, and I certainly agree with that point in in, in Jay Stanley's report. Jay's a good friend of mine, by the way. He's my cousin. Uh, oh wow, great. Um, but 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 in general, yes. I mean. I was talking mostly about the FISA court because that's what I'm, you know, I think it's a unique institution that, uh, you know, tries to bring a judicial lens onto something that historically we have thought resists that kind of judicialization, which is intelligence surveillance. Um, But there are many other mechanisms of oversight that are important. Um, And that board, um, you know, was certainly a lot of skepticism, especially from Jay Stanley of the ACLU on its effectiveness and powers. I think it's contributed enormously to the debate. I'm not sure that bulk collection would have ended if it hadn't been for the uh, PCLOB's report, uh, both not just because they endorsed ending it, but because they went through all of the examples the government had used to justify it and basically cast some cold water on those examples. And they had a lot of credibility in doing that uh, because they had access to the classified information that the government didn't make public about those examples. So I think that that board has been quite effective in doing what it does. Um, I think there may be other mechanisms that we can think of to strengthen accountability. And I've been told that that's all we have time for. If you have other questions, I'm certainly here after the break and we can talk uh, offline. But thank you very much.
0: And we can uh, adjourn to a reception out in the atrium. You're all invited. Uh, And continue the conversation with Tim out there, if you would. Thank you very much. Thank
1: Appreciate it.